Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us uh, here at uh, Penn Valley Church. Thanks for again being part of this family of families. And uh, if you haven't been here, we've been going through a sermon series again called It's Time, going through the, the last half of the book of John, where again, in that final week of Jesus' ministry, we are taking a look at all of the things that Christ has committed himself to. And he's committed himself to uh, his kingship. He's committed himself to his death. He's committed to our transformation. He's committed to, to loving those that, again, uh, we, we just could possibly not love unless it was through the lens of, of Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're continuing to move through this. And again, going to this particular moment where, again, Christ is going to say, now it's finally time to fulfill all of the things that he's come here to do. Uh, and so that's what we've been going through. Now, back in World War I and World War II, uh, it, it was very easy to recruit people uh, to service during, during the wars. Uh, they pre pretty much just presented the idea that there was evil and injustice and that we were fighting for things like freedom and democracy uh, and men out of a sense of duty patriotism to their country out of a sense of adventure were willing to, to sign up and enlist in the military. Well, after World War II, things started to change a little bit. Society changed as a whole, especially. We went from kind of this moving to this uh, service-oriented industry. Uh, people were no longer really farmers as a whole. And so by the time we got to the 50s, the Army realized we need to start changing up some of our recruitment strategy. The idea of just saying, you know, fight evil wasn't quite getting people signed up. Well, in the 50s as well, people began to move towards a level of higher education, especially into the 60s and 70s. And so they began to push the idea that if you signed up for the military, they would pay for college. And so that was a really important thing for people, as well as the idea that they started to say, you can make a career out of it, right? It's not just enlist, we're gonna fight, we're gonna fight the evils, we're gonna fight the war, and then you're done. But this was something that, hey, maybe you're really good at being in the army and, and, and you can do this for the rest of your life. And so they, they started to get more people that way, which was going well until the 1990s. And then around the 1990s, they started having trouble recruiting people again. And they said, listen, we, we've tried the, the, the college level, we've, we, we've tried to go the, the, the career angle, it's just not working. And so they actually started to lower qualifying standards in the 90s, as well as beginning to accept more and more women into the service to start filling the ranks. Well, now we get to the 2000s and the 2010s, and they're still struggling to fulfill this. And so they, they said, listen, we, we really need to go back into the schools. We really need to push recruiting hard. They started sending more recruiters out into the streets, major events like big sporting events. It wouldn't be uncommon to go down to a, a football game you know, and see a recruiter station set up there. Um, and, and they even realized most of the people that were not getting uh, are coming from the north. We, we've hit the south pretty good. That's where the military tends to find a lot of its soldiers. And so they said, we're actually going to go into the major cities in the north and, and make a very drastic push to get more and more people. Well, the military's still been having problems trying to recruit people. So they said, we really got to start getting creative here. 
and so they actually started to now push the idea of signing bonuses that depending upon what you're going for, your level of expertise, the knowledge that you have, they say that some people can get a recruitment sign-on bonus of about $15,000 all the way up to about $50,000 just to sign up for the military. Now, they have gotten even more creative. Uh, if you don't know, there is something called eSports. It is now the Competitive Professional Gaming League that the Army has actually tried to recruit people by saying, if you join the Army, you can actually join the military's eSports team. Okay, so they're really going for a major, major push to try to get people in. They've tried using phrases. You might remember some of these phrases. Be all you can be in the Army. It's not just the job, it's an adventure. The few, the proud, the Marines, aim high, the Air Force. Uh, a lot of the commercials you'll notice, uh, more recently especially, have a very geared particular angle. It wasn't too long ago that one of the reasons they felt people were not recruiting was because parents were worried, and so they had these commercials where they, they had the kid and he's like, I want to join. And the parents are like, I can't believe you would want to join. What would ever make you do it? And they're like, mom and dad, nobody taught me better about service and responsibility than you. And you know, of course the parents are like, oh yeah, you need to sign up. Um, or, or recently, you might have seen the one where they, they've called it the, um, the warrior calling, where they start highlighting all of these different types of military jobs. You know, are you the, are you the communicator? Are you the scout? Uh, are you the, the doctor? And they give them these kind of fancy names to try to match with the current trend of all of the, the, the superhero movies that are out there. And so the military has just been pushing and pushing to try to get people to join. You know, and, and the whole point of a recruitment strategy is you, you want the best, you want the brightest, you want your organization to be as best as it possibly can be, right? Well, when we talk about recruitment, you know, Christianity kind of has that in a way. There are certain things that we say for very good reasons of why coming to Christ makes sense, right? There, there's a hope that we have. There, there is freedom from our sins. There is joy. There, there is eternal security. Those are all good reasons. Now, there are some bad reasons that people will tell you that if you come to Christ, you know, you will find wealth and prosperity. God wants to bless you and you'll have riches, right? God doesn't promise that in the Bible. Sometimes people come to Christ because they're struggling with an ailment or a sickness. And we promise that if you find Christ, God is going to heal you. Know, you. God is going to heal your spouse or your child. And again, God certainly can do those miracles, but the Bible never says that if you come to Christ, you will be physically healed of all of your ailments. Well, we're going to see today, what is Christ's recruitment strategy? What is it that he's calling us towards and what is it that Christ is committing us to? Now, in the previous chapter, we talked about abiding in Christ, that if you remain in Christ, right, there is going to be growth and transformation, that you will bear the fruit of Christ, and that fruit will overflow with love for God and for others. But today we're going to look at, again, what is Christ calling us to in terms of recruitment? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up there, John chapter 15, verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. And it says here, 
If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they would persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. For if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates, hates my father as well. And if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. So again, up to this point, Christ has been talking about hope and blessing and eternal security. He's talking about comfort here. And now he changes directions and he says, of all of these things you'll have, you will also have hatred for you in your life. And he says, the reason is, is because again, I am the fixation of that hatred. If they hate me, somebody that has come and has brought truth to them, they're also going to hate you as well in that very same process. And he says, I've come to choose you out of this world. Okay? I've called you to be one of my own. Right? The, the world doesn't like you because you're not part of the world. Don't you get it? It's going to hate you in this process. And they're going to persecute you because they don't know the Father, they don't know me, and they don't like the standards that I have set up. And so we see this idea about rejection. Because in, in John 10 here, it tells us, it says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger, and in fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. See, if we're in Christ... We can hear the words of God all the time. If we are in Christ, we know our shepherd's voice. And so when Satan calls to us and whispers the lies, we should be able to identify that and say, that is not my father. But we also have the opposite, that if we choose to not have Christ, John 8 says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, we're either going to follow the ways of Satan and, and be influenced by him, or we're going to follow the ways of God. One of them is going to be our father. And so because we choose to be in Christ, we're a part of a different family, and so the world hates us for it. And that makes a lot of sense, because as we go even further into the scriptures, we see here in James, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enemy with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In John, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father 
is not in them. If I choose to love Christ, if I choose to be a part of Christ's family, the only natural response is that I am an enemy of this world. Because if you are not in Christ, you are therefore an enemy of God and an enemy of this family of Christ. And there is just going to be a tension and abutting heads that exist. And so again, the result of all of this is going to be hatred. You know, I kind of think of it like Rick Sames. We we all know Rick, and and we are desperately praying for Christine right now, right? But sometimes Rick likes to come into this church parading his sin around, right? (laughs) Sometimes he likes to come in and put on his Dallas Cowboy jersey. (laughs) I pray for his soul. But see, that's just it. We love Rick. We do, and we get along, we have fun. But the moment he puts that jersey on in Philly, there is instant animosity. And that's how it is with the world. He says, you are not part of this family, and they are not part of this family, and there is just a direct opposition to one another. We have two different fathers. We have two different worldviews. We have two different endings to our story. We have two different standards of life when you are in Christ or out of Christ. We are diametrically opposed in just about every single way that we walk in this world. And so not only does the tension exist because we have different fathers, but again, we have different standards of holiness. Right? We have committed our lives to Christ, and Christ has said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to obey my teachings. You are going to become holy like I am. And therefore, sin has no place in your life. And when we present that truth to the world, they don't want any part of it. They don't want to hear truth. They don't want to hear that there's some sort of absolute standard that has been defined by this holy and almighty, powerful God. Because what the world wants to do is it wants to live its own life the way that it can. It doesn't want to be told that there is wrong. It doesn't want to be told that there's sin. It doesn't want to be told that there's any sort of restrictions in their life that they should be able to do exactly however they want. Because in the end, they all want to play God themselves. But again, as Christians, we know that's not true. We recognize our state of sinfulness, and we know that God is calling us to something more. And in Philippians 2, he says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like them amongst the stars in the sky. In Ephesians 8, he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. See, when we are the light, that is our job. Our job is to expose the darkness. Our job is to chase the darkness away. And when we do that, when we bring truth to people and we say that there is a holy and an infinite and all-powerful God who loves you and cares for you, but what you're doing is sin and God doesn't like that, the world says, I hate you for that. 
And what does it want to do? It wants to persecute us. And that word persecute is the idea that it's to pursue, to cause us as Christians to have to be on the run, to chase or to hunt down. I kind of think of that, that idea of how the villagers went after Frankenstein, right? They grabbed their pitchforks and their torches and they said, we're going to kill this monster. That is the way the world views us. They've got their pitchforks ready. They've got their torches ready. And they are ready to kill us. But this shouldn't shock us because God, again, in his great graces, has spoken to us. John 3, this is the verdict that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. The evil hates light. We are the light. Because Christ shines within us. And they are fighting to conceal all of their sins. They are fighting to suppress any sort of truth and any sort of righteousness that exists so they can continue to live the way that they want to live. And they don't want to see it. And matter of fact, it's not just that they hate light, but Romans takes it even a step further. See, here's what Romans tells us. It says, furthermore... Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, and they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they only continue to do these very things but approve of those who practice them. You know, it's not just enough that sin exists and they don't want to hear truth, but the unbelieving world, the world of darkness, the world of sin, those who have, the heaven, who have the father of Satan will go out of their way to commit new ways of evil. And we shouldn't be surprised when we look at a world around us that is so steeped in sin. And I think about just what we have done to children of this world by allowing abortions to continue. And what do we do? We, we give our approval of them. The world looks at this and says, this is good. Evil is good. Let us hate what these so-called Christians call as righteousness. And so we live in a place right now where it can be very easy for us to take our faith for granted. I don't think any one of you woke up this morning, got into your car and feared about coming to church, and fearing the fact that you might enter this church and someone might throw a bomb in here and blow this place up. I highly doubt that there are some of us that as we got out of our cars or we walked our Bibles in here, thought there's, I, I highly doubt that there's going to be a police force standing out there waiting to arrest me and throw us into jail. But the reality is that there are many men and women who call themselves followers of Christ, that the very proclamation of his name is a death sentence in this world.
This is the recruitment strategy of Christ. This is what we're signing up for. But God continues in his word here. In verse 26, he's going to talk about the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Right? A couple weeks ago, I talked about how God comforts us through the Holy Spirit. So we could expect that we're going to see a little change of pace in the tone here, right? You're going to be hated and you're going to be persecuted for following me. Well, Christ is going to give some very honest truth here. Verse 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. And all of this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue, and in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is doing an offering of service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Again, we, we think the Spirit's going to come and say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You'll be perfectly fine. That's not what he says at all. He says, I just want you to know they're going to persecute you. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to kill you, and they're going to rejoice over the fact that they kill you. And what does the Spirit tell us to do? It says, your job is to testify for me. Your job is to be my witness. So when the world hates us and it persecutes us, you know what the Spirit calls us to do? The Spirit says, you need to go back in there. You need to keep proclaiming my name. Wait a minute. You want me to go back in when, when, when they hate me and they want to arrest me and they want to kill me? Yes, that's exactly what the Spirit is calling us to do. That's some heavy stuff if you want to follow Christ. Richard uh, Wormbrand was born in 1909 in Romania. He was actually born Jewish and was part of a Jewish family, and then he came to know Christ and went on to become a, a religious leader in this area of Romania. And when World War II happened and the, the, so, the, the Nazi forces invaded, he saw this as an opportunity to minister the love of Jesus Christ to the Nazis. And then when World War II was over, the communists came in and took over, and he had the very same mentality. And he said, I'm going to continue to witness to my oppressors. I'm going to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. And so in 1948, Richard was kidnapped, and he was put in jail for 14 years, oftentimes in solitary confinement, and faced all kinds of tortures to the place where they literally just broke his fingers. He was released in 1964, and he started the organization that some of you know, the Voice of the Martyrs, an organization that keeps you and I aware of the persecutions around the world that seeks to help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing some of the worst kinds of persecution that exist. He wrote many books, and one of his popular books is the book that is known as Tortured for Christ. I encourage you to find a copy. I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to see what it's like for a man 
to truly follow Christ. In the book, he talks about a situation where his wife was put into a labor camp, hauling stones and dirt to build a canal, and the one time she fell, and the guards kicked her into the icy water below. And as she struggled to survive in the icy waters, and as she struggled to try to get out, the guards laughed and mocked her and simply said, where is your God? And Richard had another story. This is probably one of my favorite passages in the book. He said this, he said, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. You know, we, we might gasp at an experience like this. But this is what the scriptures have just said. This is what we are to face if we are to follow Christ. I titled this sermon, Ye Be Warned. Because this is a warning that if we want to follow Christ, it doesn't come easy. That if we want to follow Christ, it may cost us our job. It may cost us family. It may cost us relationships. We might be imprisoned, and it may cost us our life. And he says, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be led astray. I don't want you to stumble on the path. Again, don't get me wrong. All of those blessings that he has offered to us about hope and eternity and joy, those are ours to be had. But if we are, we are fools to think that we will never experience problems and trials in this world. Luke 21 says this. When, when he's talking to his disciples about the end times, and he says, someday I will come back for you. Someday I will come back a second time and I will make this world right. But until that happens, here is what you will experience. Before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors on an account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand of how you will defend yourselves. For I give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. So stand firm, and you will win life. Why is he telling us this? Why is he calling us to this type of life? Because he says this is the reality of a world that hates you, and I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to fall a path. I want you to stand firm until the very end, because if you stand firm for Christ, then you have won. You have won all of eternity. And I don't want to see that happen. You know, none of us come to Christ perfect, right? We are all sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. 
We are all miserable and wretched people. And he says, I'm going to transform you to be like me. And so that's why he says, it's not about how you start the journey with me, but it's about how you finish it in the end. Because you're going to walk a journey that is difficult, more than you could probably understand. But in the end, if you are willing to remain faithful, Christ is faithful to us. So, so why follow Christ? Why put up with the persecution? Why deal with all of this? Because there may be some of you sitting here right now thinking, this is probably maybe the worst sermons that I've heard. What is the benefit of this? 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. When we encounter persecution, we should consider it a joy and we should rejoice and we should praise God that persecution has happened in our life because it means the spirit of God rests on you and me. And why is that so significant? Why does it matter that the Spirit of God rests on you and me? Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. And we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Why do we care about persecution? Because it means that I am in Christ. And if I am in Christ, heaven is mine forever. I don't have to worry about where I stand. There is a blessing in that. That Christ says, one day I will make this world right. And you will be with me for all of eternity. And all of the pain and filth and trash and everything you went through will be gone. And I am your father and you will always be my child. That is why we rejoice in persecution. Because I know my Father's voice. As I said earlier, none of us probably woke up feeling persecution was going to happen. This is not China and this is not Iran. But we know... Every day is one step closer to the tribulation. One day is one day closer to the end when Christ will eventually come back. And what Christ has promised us in his scriptures is that things are not going to get better. And what we need to remember is America is not Christ and Christ is not an American. We often look at this country and we hold ourselves and this idea of religious freedom as if nothing will ever take that away. And I pray that that continues. But we have seen the direction of this country, have we not? We have seen the direction of what is being placed more and more against the Christian. 
And so we are naive and fools to think that we will always be able to stand here and preach a sermon. We would be fools and naive to think that there may come a day that when you show up to church, the police is waiting for you. And if you don't think that is the case, just take a look across the border up north and what's happening to our pastors there for proclaiming Christ. If you don't know, one of them decided to continue to hold a church service over COVID. And he fought against the police. And he said, you will not come in here. And they came back with a warrant. He left the country. And then he came back and he said, this is my responsibility to bear the burden of Christ. And they arrested him on the tarmac of the plane because he chose to have church during COVID. If you think we are exempt, times are coming. If we profess to be Christians, if we profess to be the light, again, darkness should have a reaction to us. That's only natural. In our current state, I think the church has allowed the culture to dictate the gospel, as opposed to the gospel running our lives. And so we have to start to ask ourselves then, as believers, do we look any, world, any different than the world? Are, are we really the light that we profess, or are we simply just another piece of the darkness that exists? And so if this is what Christ is committing us to, again, we have to make a decision here as believers. We have to make a decision here as this church. What are we going to stand for? Are we going to stand on the gospel of truth? Are we going to stand against the rising tide of culture that pushes in on us, that causes us to quit and give up? Or are we going to be able to do what Christ did and lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel? So I pray these words in Paul. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, Words may be given so that I will fiercely make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. We rejoice that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ and we are, the Spirit has told us that we are to testify to the light, then I pray that we and I would be emboldened to do so despite the consequences. But, but I don't want us to look at this as some sort of militant type of idea that we are going to go out and attack people in the name of Christ. I want us to also remember the character of Christ above all is love. That the persecution that we experience should be bathed in love for those who hate us and who call us our enemies. We should be praying for those that hate us. Richard Wombrun also said this. He said, God will judge us, not according to how much we endured, but how much we could love. The cross was the greatest example of God's love for us amidst one of the greatest acts of persecution and hatred that ever existed. 
And when he hung on that cross, you remember those words? Father, forgive them. So my prayer is this, that this would be a church, that this would be a body of believers that would preach the truth and we will love those that hate us in the midst of that. Can we do that? Are you afraid? Are you worried? It's okay to say yes. It's okay to say yes. But I promise you this, I promise you this, that your Father will never leave you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I have to stand here and preach your truth to this congregation. And Lord, I, I have to be willing to accept the reality of persecution. Lord, it is easy to stand here and preach at times. It is easy to say it in the, the comfort of my home. Lord, it is a different circumstance when we are amongst the world. But I pray for boldness. I pray that as Paul prayed, that we would do this fearlessly, Lord. And I pray that above all, that when we face pushback, when the world hates us, that we would still find the strength to love them in return. Lord, you have given us the greatest example. Lord, you died on the cross because you loved us. You died for the world that hated you. And Lord, you've chosen to forgive us for that. Lord, let us not give in to temptation. Lord, let us not give in to fear that we would ever compromise the gospel and compromise the truth. Let us be bold in the words that we speak. Let us truly shine as light into darkness, God. Let us truly exemplify the life that you have called us to live for you. And Lord, when that time comes, may we endure it with a smile on our face because we know that you are our Father for now and evermore. Amen.